How is everything? Everything is super good. Fuck with me. I got a lot of problems nobody else has. Uh, I hate when you find like a tick in your car. It really, uh, really ticks you off. Anyway, um, welcome to uh, Pleasant Evenings Book Club. This is Hannah, as always. Uh, joining us tonight, uh, as per usual, is Roberto and Corbin. Uh, you guys want to say hi? Hello. Hi there. Great. So, uh, tonight we are discussing, um, A Scanner Darkly. It is a film adaption of a Philip K. Dick novel, um, about drugs and surveillance. So, uh, yeah, that's what we'll be discussing tonight. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, without further ado, I'll kind of hand it off to Roberto for, uh, the summary. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, it's a really nice movie. Um, a little bit of background: the novel is based on is is seen as being uh, maybe the most autobiographical of Philip K. Dick's published works, and supposedly is the one that he did, the first novel that he did without any amphetamines. Nice, we love uh, amphetamines. <laughs> yeah, but I I wonder if that gave him like enough distance to like see things with new eyes or something. Right. Had done a lot of drugs. This is a story of... Um, it's set seven years from the present. Movie came in 2006, but it, it just says... It takes place seven years from now. And mm-hmm. it's about a, a... A group of people addicted to this... Uh, to this uh, fictional drug called Substance D. And kind of like how their relationships deteriorate or kind of uh, play out. Uh, in particular, our main character, played by Keanu Reeves, Bob slash Fred, who is actually an undercover cop investigating this group of people to try to uh, go up the chain of like their, their dealer, uh, his girlfriend Donna, to try to hopefully... Um, you know, make a dent on the war on drugs. Part of how he does this is that he's at the police precinct wearing something like an invention called the scramble suit, which ensures his anonymity. We can go into like what the scramble suit is uh, a little later. It's kind of like um, this uh, like full body suit that blends facial features and clothes and other details from like a million one people to make a kind of anonymous blur of you know just like the idea of a person so the idea is that no one there at the police precinct knows who he is to protect his identity as as an undercover agent and things start getting extra paranoid or extra extra stressful for for bob slash fred when he is assigned especially to surveil himself his alter ego in the in that group of of drug addicts who live it who live in his house so a lot of the movie is like it, it follows just like his follows like their different um antics like they go out um they go out on a trip and the car breaks down or one of them buys a bike but it also uh 
follows his cognitive decline until he's eventually he eventually burns out and is taken to to the uh, single rehab facility that specializes on substance D that has a special deal with the government. Where it's revealed that his girlfriend Donna, that he thought he was investigating buying drugs from to go up the ladder, was actually a was actually her superior at the at the police station, and they were hoping to burn him out while uh while conditioning him to gather evidence in his burned out state while he's at this uh at this rehab facility. So it ends with uh uh, Donna, the superior, feeling very conflicted about what they'd done as well, and with uh, Bob Arthur, Fred, and his new identity at the rehab facility, Bruce. Following through on that, though though we don't see how that's gonna play out. So that's kind of the, a brief overview, but I think like the, the meat of the story is in these interpersonal relationships. As well as in the way that the world is fleshed out. Right. In the background details. Like a big aspect of it is that this is, you know, like uh, um, Philip K. Dick would have been extrapolating from the kind of surveillance that leftist organizations were under under the Nixon years. And Richard Linklater in this movie in 2006 is obviously, you know, thinking about what the future is like is extrapolating from the total surveillance that you would see after the you know from the patriot act and you know just general right technological like surveillance capitalism right 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 any uh would you say like those are the essential details here we can like go start going in more uh like more with a finer comb i think you sort of i think you sort of covered the broad strokes of the story um, what did you, what did you guys think of the animation style? Oh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful to like, uh, to me like that's like, I'd never heard of Philip K. Dick or Richard Linklater before this movie. I had seen school of rock, but I was a kid. I didn't associate right. that with a name. Um, right, right, right. But seeing yeah. a movie with a look like this really got me curious. And like, I became mildly obsessed with this movie as a kid. I didn't have access to um foreign dvds right uh foreign to me uh whatever <laughs> right 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 right, right. <laughs> um but as far as like the effect that it has it's it's great in terms of like knocking you off center as you watch it it puts you in this kind of dissociated state or the, the sort of um, semi-hallucinogenic state where nothing really feels real all the time. Right. And then I think like even like just the mechanics of it kind of work as a metaphor. So there's a animation style called rotoscoping where uh-huh. you record like video and then a team of artists draw over it, tracing over the the video as reference. So you get a more realistic style of animation and attention to right. to detail that yeah like right, as a right, metaphor right. it kind of writes itself right you just have this real this base reality and then this enhancement on top of it yeah exactly so exactly. i'll i'll be honest i've seen this style of animation before 
and, and Hannon Hannon liked it. Um, in, in terms of this context, yeah, I I I buy it, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, jarring, dis- dissociative <laughs> feeling that I had seen a similar animation style before. Made me not necessarily enjoy it. Right. Mm. Is it like a worst of both worlds kind of thing for you? Yeah. Yes. And in, in short, <laughs> totally. Like, if you're going to do animation, go uh, all out on it. If you're going to add realism, make it live action. I'm not sure. See, see, I, I conversely, I think for a movie about like um, drug fueled paranoia and like uncanny hallucinations, like it did a really good job of conveying both of those things <laughs> to me who has experienced drug fueled paranoia and uncanny hallucinations. <laughs> and in that respect, I think it kind of nailed it. No, in, in the context for sure. Um, right. Just, just the, the style though, generally I, um, that mixed method I don't usually like. Oh, and I was curious, like what your, um, what your prior exposure to rotoscope had been like I have a short list of a canon of rotoscope uh works that's pretty short so I was wondering where specifically which, only, what it was for you the only standout thing that I had saw previously was undone oh yeah which I seen that I like it it was a series and you know those are a little bit longer to sit through a whole season than a two-hour movie. What about Waking Life? Oh, right from Rink- from Linkletter. Was that... that was his first uh, go? Was that him? Okay, I think. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I think I've seen that, but I I think I was so fucking high when I saw <laughs> it that I don't remember any of it. Because I, I remember sitting down to watch it with somebody, but then I don't remember in t- in taking any information in. You know. Like just just enough to remember what it approximately was. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's one of those movies. You know when you're a kid and you're like, you know when you're a kid and you like you're you go to the like the uh, speak American to you, you go to the blockbuster. You drive your automobile uh-huh. to the blockbuster and you're you're walking through like maybe the horror section or just like different areas in the blockbuster and there's just certain uh like covers. Or maybe like the employee is playing a movie that you don't know what it is, and it's just like, not the movie, but the potential of the movie is burned into your mind. Right. That was, okay. um, an experience I had with Waking Life, like, before that it planted oh, a okay. curiosity bug, because it was like, um, there was an ad for it, and it was like playing on pay per view when I was a kid, and. Uh huh. I would see the advertisement for it. And again, I would see this. I think like I'm the opposite of, of Corbin in that something about that art style just really made me curious. Like I always liked animation. It was like a type of animation that I'd never seen before. Yeah, I'm neutral to it. I, I think that when it's, you know, executed well, like, you know, it's useful. I think it's good. Like I obviously liked a lot mm-hmm. in, in, in this movie, yep. a Scanner Darkly, so... Yeah, when it's appropriate. Like, I think for Waking Life, it really works because it's a depiction of a dream or right. many dreams. I don't know. It's like, it's it's about dreams. 
so it helps with that. It works with season one of Undone very well, because as you go through the show, spoiler, spoiler, uh, skip ahead if you don't want Undone spoiled. Um, It's introduced in the, in the first season. I guess I could, the whole story. It's revealed that the character, like, schizophrenia runs in her family, and so a lot of the things that happen then are, like, you uh-huh. interpret them through that lens. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, so it works especially well for this middle space between reality and fantasy. But you couldn't just do, like, um, Naruto this way or else it would just be terrible. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, well, like, I, a very I, niche, acceptable space for... I think one of the things that really works for it is... Mm-hmm. That it really works for is when that reality kind of breaks a little bit. Uh-huh. Like I like when you get the uh, hallucination of oh man, I'm forgetting what's Robert Downey Jr.'s name in the movie. It was Barris. Yeah, Barris. I think. Oh uh, yeah, when like like B A R R. Yeah, when he like turns into a bug. Yeah. Or like I guess the other bit with Barris when um. Uh, Freck is like having lunch with him and you get the thought bubbles pop up like Freck is imagining what right. Barris is thinking at, and he's imagining the waitress like taking off her shirt right 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 like and you get to have like these very cartoonish thought bubbles pop up and um, Robert Downey Jr. is like making these like exaggerated like 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 wolf from those cartoons like he's like making these like disgusting the horny man faces yeah you know i was surprised by how funny the movie was at points like mm-hmm. even when what is it freck tries to kill himself yeah it just ends in a joke <laughs> where he takes like a bunch of hallucinogens by accident and then like a, a man made of cheese or something <laughs> reads him his sins you know like and like like the, the punchline is that he's glad he got a good glass of wine you know like i just i yeah, yeah, it's 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 there's a tragic like, comedy to it that right. he's doing the serious thing, but throughout the whole thing is there's all these little fuck ups, but just like the little things, like he spent more time thinking about yeah, about how he was gonna do it, he, like are you gonna get a nice suit, and he what he um writes an unfinished letter to Exxon for canceling his gas and wanted to die holding a copy of the fountain because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would achieve something right. but like i have no idea like it's just like it's like like right. a um like a parody of depth that he's portraying like playing out right like ended up in hell and most of all it's boring to him after 1000 years he had reached the sixth grade the year he discovered masturbation <laughs> <laughs> at least he had a good glass of wine yeah there were so many great there's a lot of great dialogue I, I, so this is what I was going to say before but I really like the way it brings like um, like I, I really like the way it like elevates like the paranoia that comes from like doing drugs to like uh, actual reality you know like anybody who's like smoked a lot of weed or like done acid or anything like that knows exactly like the kind of mindset that these people fall into mm-hmm. you know what I mean of just like every everything's bugged every like oh my gosh what if they're coming for <laughs> us you know like what if it's you know 
Uh, but then to like, it's weird because they actually are. I, I just couldn't stop yeah. thinking about that. You know, to like see their like druggy living room, mm-hmm. but then to know that it's also full of cameras, you know, is is in so many ways the actual druggies like worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if you told somebody who actually trips on acid regularly that their like little pad is like full of cameras, they would lose their mind, <laughs> you know? And I think that's why it's so like, um, yeah, like that's a great point, anyway. a great point to make. Like, I think, like, w- like any story about addiction, like, the worst version of a story about addiction is, like, he was going to be a lawyer, but then he made, he touched fentanyl and became hopelessly addicted. It all went down the drain. Like, it's all about, like, these personal failures or as, like, this, like, victim right. of, like, these bad forces. For the most hardcore, like, addicts, like, usually at the same, you know, anyone's been to an AA meeting or anything will know, like, there's, like, usually, like, some kind of pain or, like, some kind, like, it's the point of taking this narcotic is to make life a little bit more bearable in some way. They're not just parent because of the drug, they're parent, yeah, they're parent because of, like, the actual reality of everything. And there's right. some... Uh, like uh, for the for the emotional stuff, like I would point to um, Keanu Reeves flashback when you see like when he had a wife and family, assuming that's real. Right. Yeah, I I got the sense that mm-hmm. it was, or at least it's yeah. supposed to be. They went for circle back around. Like, there's a lot to like dig into there, but um, or when Barris, like Barris, is a funny case where he's kind of a <laughs> he's kind of a like an asshole. Like there's something like like psychopathic about him, um. And you can tell he's talking out of his ass a lot of the time, but it's not like he's not smart. Like he, maybe he's not as smart as he thinks he is, but uh, like he goes and puts pressure on Bob Arctor when he goes to like sell him out to the police because he sees that there's something up with who he is. Like he says like he's not who he says he is. And it's true because he actually is an undercover cop. He just doesn't know, you know, he may, may, he's wrong about the specifics maybe, but like all the paranoia is rooted in like, or real sense that something's wrong. Right. What do you think of, like, the way that they do policing in the society? <laughs> um, with, like, all these undercover cops and these suits. Um, like, the extent that they go to, like, hide the identity of the undercover cop. And, like, I mean, what allows for the twist at the end, ultimately, you know, that, that essentially that structure of, like... Uh... What's really weird is that if you didn't have the twist... Mm. all of those elements would kind of justify themselves in the logic of the war on drugs or yeah like this idea of like protection and anonymity for law enforcement like so they give him money to try to buy um past their dealer's ability to front for more and then because of that money that makes him suspicious because why would he have all this money so you gotta watch him like there's a funny, <laughs> right, there's right. a cause and effect there that makes sense. Yeah, I like the the you know obviously it's you know revealed to be sort of a different situation at the end, but um, I like how for a while there the implication is always that someone in the group is involved with some bad people, mm-hmm. quote unquote. But it's not like who like who would who would they be, you know? Like, when they describe the fact that they're investigating Barris, it's like, oh, yeah, he's falling in with some bad people, <laughs> or they want to know who Donna's people are. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, well, who are these people anyway? You know, like, obviously, we find out, but 
in sort of a very, very unsuspected and roundabout mm-hmm. way. So it's like that thing about like blind men touching an elephant. Like everyone just like has oh, like yeah. a different sense based on like what what mismatch in their reality jumped out to them. Right, right. Just like whatever they're closest to. Freck and Woody Harrelson. I completely blanked on whatever Woody Harrelson's name is. Yeah, I did I, I, comic yeah. relief, I think was his name. Yeah. <laughs> Ernie. Ernie. Ernie Comic Relief. Ernie Comic Relief. Luckily. Right. He and Freck are never suspected of anything, right? Not directly, I guess. Though Freck thinks he's suspected, you know? You get the sense he's very paranoid. <laughs> yeah, there was that scene where he's, like, choking, and, and Barris is, like, just kind of watching him choke. Right, and, like, pontificating about shit. Yeah. And it's so weird, like, uh, when he's on the phone, when he's on the phone with with 911, right. it's so weird, like, he just, he can't resist, like, the urge to try to explain things to people. Right. That's a guy, like, loves to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. But then, but then he's like, I don't know, how, do you think that he wa- he was hoping he would die, or do you think he was just so uncaring that he was in no hurry to go past his own pace uh i don't think that there was malice in it i think that there was supposed to be malice in it apparently but i don't think that there was genuinely mm-hmm. malice in it you know because that was shown to like what bob arcturus footage or something yeah because like they bugged the house and he's watching it later like I, I think the actual truth there is that he's literally just too strung out to do anything effective about it like these people are useless <laughs> at like functionally helping each other you know what I mean like mm-hmm. you know I like I, I think you know unfortunately that if you and I were both frying on like three tabs of acid and one of us choked the other one would have a really hard time solving that problem yeah it'd be I yeah like straight up I to me, it didn't seem like anything other than like, oh, they're druggies, so they're just bad at this. <laughs> you know, like this is a situation. Yeah, what's don't tend to be able. What's to scary about Barrius though is just like how calm he is. He's like, oh, That's what's true. the address? I should know because I recently mailed something to myself, and I just goes like, this is my house. It goes outside seven oh nine. Is that enough? Do you need a street name? <laughs> Yeah, that's what I mean. That's like a, I, I don't know. It's it, to me, it sounds like he's yeah, tripping. He's, you know what I mean? It sounds like he's straight up tripping balls. You know, like he doesn't have like a, the classical sense of like, um, you know, what things are mm-hmm. important. You know, like <laughs> right. Yeah. Besides, like whatever thought he's on. Again, yeah, I, I didn't read a lot of malice in it, other than just the unfortunate like malice of taking a lot of drugs and doing irresponsible things. You know. Yeah, it seemed like, yeah, that he eventually responded. But then when, I think there's something mildly, maybe it's just like the way that people say that cocaine makes him mildly sociopathic. Um, Uh uh, when late, like when he gets better and, and Ernie's like, like, haven't you heard of the Heimlich maneuver? Like, why didn't you do anything while I died? While I was dying. And, Barris just like starts like critiquing his ability to chew, and I was like, "How is it my fault that like, you can't chew?" Like he, that's fucked up. Yeah, Barris is really a re- pretty reprehensible human. You know what I mean? Like, 
if if not like morally um like evil like willing to defend his own like gross mm-hmm. negligence do you know what i mean so that's like a, a kind of pretty bad in and of itself you know yeah i guess that would be a form of malice i guess an absence of right. altruism yeah yeah absolutely was it just an absence of good is evil Right, but I don't think he has the will to commit evil, really, at least with respect to the situation, you know what I mean? I just, I think he just, you know, the, the evil is in not caring to do anything. Right. So, like, when he, like, sells, so when he, like, tries to sell out Bob Arthur, he, I mean, he does, he does try to, like, get one over, I guess, in a way that he, he wants to, he just says, like, yeah, I want to come over to your side if you, he's, like, trying to get a, a, right. a job there and prove how good he is at being a cop but like as far as he explains it too like he thinks he could be killed at any moment by bob arctor right i love his reading it's like i could be murdered like he like (laughs) it's like that that was a great dynamic that he had with the police where they're so like mean like they're so like dismissive of him Mm-hmm. And at this, while he in his own is still trying to do his thing, where he's the smartest guy in the room, like I, I got like this is one of my this is like one of the best Robert Downey Jr. performances. I I haven't seen Doolittle, so I can't say for certain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but though that like that was a great way that they they played. Like he would say something about how he has connections, be like, okay, whatever, I don't care about the evidence, and then he would like, but that's not why I'm here. Like he would make a face like he's frustrated. But and also like a little bit disappointed right. in them, and then he would kind of just change the subject to right. some other thing. Like I w- and I wonder where they pulled out that. I don't know if that's in the book or something. Where they where they pulled out that dialogue, like the optic chiasm. Yeah, I I really liked all the flavor in terms of like the long term side effects of the drug. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the, all this, like your right and left hemisphere are not uh, <laughs> communicating properly. You know, like a normal person would be able to see that that's a dog idiot. <laughs> like. I really like that. Yeah, there's only one right answer. Right. Those are interesting scenes with the with the doctors where uh, I guess it makes sense later when you realize it's part of the um conditioning that like like when the doctor like you get this like fourth wall breaking shot of the doctor saying like buy her flowers. Like part of the conditioning, I guess. Right. Um Right. So maybe it makes sense because there's moments where like the doctors like, like go off go off script or, um, contradict each other. Uh-huh. Like one of them says like, "Could I get better?" And one of them says, "Probably," and the other one says like, "Absolutely not." I thought they were doing a thing with the doctors that they were sort of like supposed to be like vague. Uh, you know, they're supposed to like parallel like the literal hemispheres mm-hmm. of his brain a little bit. Yeah, they did have a shot. I, I would have to rewatch it to flesh out. I would have to, like, rewatch it to flesh out that theory, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And, like, see what their behavior was supposed to be. But I got the sense that they, you know, they they agreed and disagreed on just enough things that I I got the sense that they were just supposed to be echoing his, you know, his decaying brain hemispheres, you know? But... That's what I thought of. I, I didn't I didn't realize it was... Oh, cool. No, I, I, I don't know. I did not pick up at all on the uh, flower at the end and the doctor saying, oh, go buy her flowers. I, I had not picked that up as part of his training. <laughs> I, I thought they were strictly symbolic. Yeah, I didn't really pick that up either. I've seen the movie before, so I guess uh, when she said, like, she'd buy her flowers. And she says, like, you could buy little blue flowers at any, at any store. Huh. Right. 
I I guess like um like it stood out to me, especially because that shot is so weird. Yeah, that's true. Point of view of someone like talking right to the camera. Yeah, yeah, I think that's like definitely something that like would just like stand out maybe on a second viewing. Really? Unless like he got weirded out enough by the um facing the camera thing. <laughs> But those scenes are kind of disconnected. Like, if, like, a lot of the movie is... Like, the mo- like the movie's, like, uh, um... Separated enough. And, like, the, the the police scenes are the police scenes. And the druggy scenes are the druggy scenes. Right. Like, the those doctor scenes are kind of... They're, like, a third place where it's, like, like a break. Like, let's just see where he's at now. So, a subplot there, like, one of the things that that joins the stories, too, is that he's not having sex with Donna, and it's really, like... It's really getting Ooh, it's really grabbing his goat. Right, right, because she isn't. Like, I'm I'm guessing she just, like, didn't want to have sex because didn't want to complicate her job too much. Right, they're both cops. Cops can't fuck. No, they, they shouldn't. Right. What do we need, baby cops? Oh, I shudder at the thought. <laughs> yeah, that's how we get more cops. Right. Yeah, acting like they don't just shave off like the lowest denominator of like aggressive, low intelligent men, like low intelligent men. Like, yeah, okay. Can't make it in the military. Too cruel to yeah. do anything else. <laughs> Not fit or brave enough to be a firefighter. Just strong enough to beat your wife. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's one thing about the ending. Like, it's fucked up how they, you know, like, destroyed this person's brain in order to do this investigation. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's already, like, cynical enough about how the police will, y- you know, like, just see civilians as, like, instruments. Like, the state will just use civilians as instruments for whatever ends they have in mind. Right. But... At least, like, in the history of the United States government and drugs, you know, historically, they've been, like, a major supplier. True. Right? Like, like the CIA basically <laughs> proliferated LSD to begin with. Like They definitely did crack. Right, right. Right, because they wanted to, like, fund anti-communist operations in, in Latin America. Like, maybe, maybe it's a case where there's this one drug that some pharmaceutical... Com- like, that's... Oh, man, that's another, like, uh... I mean, dystopian thing of, like, even the street drug is, like, this, um, you know, corporate monopoly, <laughs> you know, it, it's... Yeah, yeah. It's just, like, the pharmaceutical industry, but, um, streamlined. It's the way, like, they even have the underground market cornered. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, I did like that there were other drugs in this, though, like... All the drugs you recognize yeah. were still in the story. <laughs> like, uh huh. Like they smoke weed a lot. I think it's referenced that Donna does blow or something. Like, yeah, she has a lot of coke. Right? Yeah, lots of coke. They they say that frequently. She's never pictured doing coke mm-hmm. though. But I I guess we're supposed to believe she only she only faked taking the substance D. 
Or that right. she took well, like as I guess being the supplier, she might have had like gel like sugar pills for herself. Right. And I mean it seems like substance D is like a harder drug than like even cocaine, so just based on how they describe yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, do you wanna talk a bit about substance D? Uh like in what in what respect? I guess like uh um like we talk about it like as a symbol and all that, but like also like lore wise, like Let's drop some death. Great, that's a great line. Like that's that sounds like something they might say. Yeah, that sounds like if real. It was real. That sounds real. Dropping death sounds like a like that sounds like a drug. <laughs> it's like perfect for like the like courting danger aspect of it. I was gonna say it's oddly romantic too. This that 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 line. Let's yeah. drop some death and drink tequila. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's really it's really sinister when you think about it. Like, Donna just, like, trying to feed him more so that he'll be, you know, like, she's, like, pushing the drug on him. You know, we realize, be- but it you would, you don't notice because, you know, if he is, you know, addicted to this drug that is, like, the most powerful thing, like, in terms of at least, like, habit formation. Right. She wouldn't need to push it very hard. She just need to say, I have it. <laughs> I wouldn't know because outside of books and movies, of course. Uh but like the way they, uh, <laughs> like the depiction of like um, circles of addicts, like there were so many great touches of like I don't know. Re- clearly, Richard Linklater had been like has had experience, has been around these groups, or maybe like it's just so well sketched out in the book. Right. Like whenever they ask each other like how much of how much D they're taking or how much, like the answer is always like not too much. I couldn't say for sure. Not too much. Right. Okay, I was like, a little more because of stress. Like, I guess, like, that's a moment of not being self-aware. Or at least not wanting to say it out loud. Right. Like, when he's, like, walking out of her house or out of her apartment, she says she does a lot of coke, and then he asks her, like, how much coke are you doing? Then she, then she says, not too much. Um, But she asks him to come back, and it's like, let's just have fun. You know, we're having fun. It's cool. Like, she has, it's like this, um... I guess she's playing a part, but it's like a um, uh, we see you see there's a pattern of like these characters like trying to um, enable each other, right? Or you know, and in, in, in that way, and that were and when do they do that, it's like justifying to themselves a little bit too. Yeah, uh, like when the car breaks down and Robert Downey Jr. like gives some substance D to Ernie and offers some to Bob, he turns it down. He's like, man, that's what's fucking us up. Gives him to take it anyway, though. Yeah, then he like, then he like gives it to like gives it to him again. I forgot what he says to like justify it. Mm-hmm. Somehow he convinces him. I don't remember exactly what the phrasing was. But at the same time, like they talk about Freck as like, you know, some kind of like, like a case study. Like he's oh no, he's gone. Like we're not like him. Yeah, I think it was. And and also like the scene when he's like uh like in the beginning you you start with, Freck, like with the bug hallucination, mm-hmm. which also like what a great introduction by the way with the with the music and just like right. the the energy <laughs> like I love that bit where like he takes a shower he thinks he's better, um, and then like he picks one out of his hair and suddenly they pop all over again. Right. Right. Yeah, the dog. Um, the, they start coming out of the dog. Yeah, when he gets in the shower with the dog, <laughs> I was like, oh, huh. Uh, so, like, he's a nice guy. He cares about the dog. Right. 
But then, like, when he's in the diner with Barris, and Barris is like, okay, you've gone past the euphoric fun stage, and now you're in the harrowing, like, bleak stage of your addiction. <laughs> and he also says, like, either you're on D or you haven't tried it yet. He has this idea that, you know, quoting, I guess, Mountain Goes, like, there's, a, there's one road, there's one place this road ends up, but he can only, he only talks about it in those, in that way when it's not about himself. Right. I don't know. How'd you guys feel about the scene? Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around. How'd you feel about the scene where he's cheating on Donna? Oh, it kind of made sense. I mean... <laughs> there was some A to B. Made, yeah, I guess like... I, I got a little... This, the, the, her, like, her like warping back and forth between being Donna and being herself kind of confused me, especially when he like recreated mm-hmm. it in the... Um, in the police laboratory or whatever. Yeah. Because I was like, wait, was it real then? Because I thought that was just like a drug hallucination. Yeah, that's definitely the thing to key into. I guess like the other stuff just kind of made me uncomfortable emotionally because I didn't like to see him spiraling in this way, but it does make sense to see it. Yeah, the transformation is is definitely like a weird break. Right. Because he recreates it later, you know what I mean? Like he's in the lab and he like you know, 3D projects it and he's able to watch it happen in real time. So I don't... We're supposed to believe that really happened somehow? I don't understand. Do you think it's supposed to be implied that undercover Donna slept with him using a different persona in order to... Oh. I don't know what. <laughs> and just, like, keep, like, putting, like, emotional pressure on him or something? Right. They have the technology, clearly. Right. <laughs> there are, like, two non... uh whatever, plot-breaking or, like, logic-breaking explanations, maybe, mm-hmm. where it, it is shown that he can, that when he's looking at the, you know, that, that he can look at the wrong thing, you know, when he's looking at the shadows. Right. Um, I don't know if you want to go on a Plato, um, but, like, it, it is shown that he saw a sheep when it was a dog. Uh, so it's possible, right? It's We're just seeing... You know, we're just in his subjective experience, and that totally makes sense. But like, he kept like rewinding, and it was at the same yeah, point. I I think it was the repetition that like because at that point it starts starts to seem scientific and not just like a matter of like personal him tripping out. You know. Yeah, because like at this point, um, there's it is possible maybe that just to fuck with him because they did say. Um, when he's reviewing the tapes, uh, he would do the, um, maintenance on the cameras. Right. Or, like, when they say they're gonna bug his house, he's doing the maintenance on the cameras, and they say, uh, how would you, wouldn't you know it's me if I'm maintaining the cameras? And they say, you can just edit yourself out of the, out of those. <laughs> right. Um, so, like, if they can, um, doctor it, like, maybe they just threw that in there to fuck with him. Oh, yeah. Huh. Um, but there is a a potential of it being like this moment where the movie breaks for a second, where like going back to that thing that we like that we started with about like um whatever like paranoia like uh coming about from a partial a partial like experience of like true reality or like uh-huh. you know like actually being onto something right um because he was he was having you know sex with this random person like as a bit of like 
like emotional transference or something. It was as a result of him being, you know, sexually frustrated with Donna. Right. So like there is like you know, if there was like a surrealist movie or something, like there is like that like symbolic or emotional connection. Right, right, right. That's true. Um did you read um I don't know how much uh Philip K. Dick explains. Did you guys read the um uh The Man in the High Castle? No, I've read very little Philip K. Dick. In fact, I think none. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I saw some of the show. Oh, I, I started it. Um, it, it felt a little slow yeah, to me. It, it, it is this slow. <laughs> I didn't finish it ever. But it ran for a couple of seasons, so I must have had... It must have picked up at some point. Um, so I don't know if how much of this is in the show... Like, cause like the book would get kind of mystical sometimes. Like a big recurring thing in the book is that everyone's always consulting the I Ching. Me too, frankly. <laughs> so you're you yeah you're already like breaking through the layer of <laughs> reality. You seeing what Philip K. Dick saw? Um, I'd rather not. <laughs> the Man in the High Castle, for the listener, I suppose, um, is about. Like, what if the Nazis won World War II? And it breaks off at the point of, like, what if um, Roosevelt had been assassinated or something? And so it depicts an America that was, like, divvied up between Japan and Germany. But within the fiction of the of the book, there's a novel that's called, like, uh, something about, like, The Song of the Grasshopper or something. I forgot what that novel was called. Something about a grasshopper. Um, but this novel within the book is like what if the allies had won world war ii and it's this book that everyone's always talking about and like that's the titular man of the high castle supposedly the author of that book like lives like in this house like far away from everything like a spoiler for the end of the book do you mind spoilers for this no thoughts on that <laughs> it's a few it's like a few okay i'll say like i don't give a shit about the audience i'm um uh just i'm asking i'm asking you I, you y'all oh yeah i guess i don't care you can spoil it yeah, it's about, it's about the, the journey, not the destination. Exactly. Um, so, and it's like not even like, a, it's like a thematic point or something. Like it ends like with a small meeting with that writer. And I'm a little fuzzy on the details. So I guess also don't even worry about it. I'm probably getting this wrong. But uh, at the end, it's like they're asking like him, like why he wrote that book or like what's up with that book. And they consult the I Ching on it. And, like, the hex- the hexagrams that come out of it, like, come out to basically, like, reality. That he's actually writing what's true. So he's, like, kind of breaking the, you know, kind of breaking the fiction of the book. And saying, you know, the, like, he was, like, seeing things as they are. I guess, like, Philip K. Dick, like, even in, like, that's, like, pretty grounded, like, science fiction. I guess this one, too, is kind of, like, a grounded science fiction thing. But he's no, he, he, he loves to, like, break reality mm-hmm. at points. Like, he was a... A guy for whom reality was broken all the time. Yeah, true. <laughs> Makes um, that very clear. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. I think it came up in that Glitch in the Matrix documentary. Um, but I think also Richard Linklater talks about it in Waking Life. How one time Philip K. Dick like had this like psychotic break. And he said he pierced the veil of reality. He realized that we've been stuck in the second century in roman times this whole time true 
Um, well, true. <laughs> yeah, I always had a hunch. Right, for sure. Uh, I, I forgot, like, what the point, like, what the, um, meaning of it being the second century is. Like, maybe in the fact that we're, maybe in the, in the idea that we're all in the fallout still of Christian conquest. Oh, right. Well, that's um, probably true. <laughs> uh, but, I, like, either way, like, the, the point is, like, Philip K. Dick is someone who's always, like, hounded by the idea that reality isn't what it seems. Yeah, I you get that sense with a lot of his work. I mean, geez, I watched what was it, Blade Runner, like a month or two ago, and that mm-hmm. definitely definitely had a lot of that in it. And that one, like in a like in a personal way. Right, right. Yeah, it's not all about the fabric of reality so much as the the <laughs> interactions we have with people. You know, if you want to take the uh, the metaphorical way of looking at everything. You know, you have, like, this, like, technologically mediated reality. Right. Where you just have, like, these artificial things stepping in for whatever emotional needs we, we need met. I think, like, Richard Linkler talking about Substance D, like, he, he didn't talk about what it does. I, could, I, I don't know if watching the movie you get a sense of, you know, how Substance D affects you, like, when, why one would take it. He just said that, like, the point of it is just to, like, add a layer to reality to make it bearable. Like, it's just the idea of, like, coping and medicating yourself. Right. I guess he could think of, like, um, medicines as a technological layer for one's experience of, like, a technological uh, augmentation of, like, one's experience of reality. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's... <laughs> and in some, you know, in some ways, like... And not to say that it's, like, a distraction or whatever. Don't take those pills. Look outside. Step on the... Touch the dirt. That's real, man. Like, it's not like... I don't mean, like, like that because... Certainly, um, you know, anyone has been, like, in an extended, like, depressive, like, run, like, knows that that is... You feel, you, you know, and then getting on medication... Or, you know, in whatever way, you f- suddenly feel like a layer of distance kind of closed between yourself and reality. Right. And I guess that's like two different, two different things. But like, I th- I feel like in, in Scanner Darkly, though, it's, it's like, yeah, Substance D somehow helps these people cope. But also like, maybe it's the cross-tatter thing. Maybe it's the way it's like living in unlivable conditions splits your awareness between like what you need to like know or think to get by and what you know deep down is is wrong what's like gnawing on the back of your head so they take substance data cope and at the same time they're like descending into this like paranoid madness where they think everyone's watching them or they're out to get them oh yeah do you want to like um like go just through some like scenes in the movie or any any like stray thoughts i'm I'm, we didn't talk about the scene with the bicycle yeah, that one was really interesting. Um, to me, that was just, like, a really good example of, like, their sort of, like, fantastical paranoia. Like, I obviously, they... Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I just... I've done drugs. It was a lot like being <laughs> on drugs. You know, I, I was like, oh, yeah, they're doing the thing where they're on drugs, you know? Like, I, you know, to get it, to get so worked up about this, these pedals or whatever, or, like, the speeds yeah. or whatever, they had to go get the extra like gears. Like, yeah, like... Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like they've done that before. 
I know, yeah. I, that's <laughs> To me, it was just like, oh, yeah, that's a very familiar feeling of just being, like, strung out and confused, you know, like, confused and anxious yeah. and strung out, like... <laughs> And what's funny about that is, like, the way they, like, rile each other up or hype each other up. Mm-hmm. Like, they're figuring things out, to, like, they're piecing things together in some way, and, like, Ernie's just like, let's go rescue the orphan gears! Right. Like, I think, like, Winona Ryder and the team, like, did bring a lot of depth to to Donna, and it's just, like, the, uh, but it, it there's an unfortunate, like, society aspect of it, where... Like a big part of Keanu Reeves's emotional journey is uh, him dealing with not having sex with her, and other characters talk about having sex with her early in the movie. And there's also Barris, like in that scene with the bicycle. Like she says something like, "You know, like there's a girl who got her bike stolen that looked kind of like that, and we should show it to to her." And and he just goes, well, no, actually, this is a boy's bike, not a girl's bike, so it can't be that. Right. It's so, like, they're, like, go, they're, like, following each other's, like, narratives, but completely dismiss her, like, immediately. Which is funny, because she's the one selling them all drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, like, it, you know, an ultimate reveal, like, more than besides that, she sounds like the most reasonable one in that whole scene. Um... She's also, like, it is revealed the one that knows the most about all the layers of surveillance and artifice that's going on. Right, right. She's the sort of the puppet master of it all, relatively speaking. Any other... Any other scenes or anything that stuck out to anyone? This was sticking out to me. It's not really a specific scene, mm-hmm. but just kind of, like, what that ending was, was all about with this surveillance society setting up this one guy ultimately get a new path I don't, I don't know it almost makes me wonder if, if it was really that necessary if they had all that technology all that surveillance if they really really needed him to go in I mean I think I think you can just distill the ultimate message of the story from this and that is that like the war on drugs is like ultimately doomed to fail and that you should focus on, like, mm. removing an abuse from the inside out. Yeah. Do you know yep. what I mean? Which, I, you know, I <laughs> sort of seems like a no-brainer at this point. But, like, you know, having discussed all of it. But, like, yeah, that, you know, I... Obviously, like, the, um, you know, when you realize it's the rehab company that's growing all of the, the you know, the, the drugs, you realize, oh, this is the opiate crisis. Do you know what uh-huh. I mean? Like, this is something, you know... Mm-hmm. You realize the problem here isn't people dealing drugs on the street. The problem is the institutional level uh, is at the institutional level where we're feeding people drugs and not helping them correctly when they get addicted. It's, it's the deeper structures and systems involved. Right, right, right. I mean, it's the whole thing is just like, I, it's like, oh, this is about oxycodone is what it really comes down <laughs> to. Right. Before like the, uh, like the opiate crisis was a, like a term we'd come to know right like, in 2006 but either way the conditions for that like i i you know it's crazy you say that like, it, i totally missed it like i talked about the pharmaceutical industry cornering the market on a certain illicit like highly addictive substance and that's exactly what happened 
Yeah, I mean, I thought it was just so on the surface that it almost, like, didn't bear repeating. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I was just like, oh, yeah, that's blatant, obvious super metaphor for, like, um, you know, the pharmaceutical narcotic industry. Like, it's just all, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, it's for pe- everybody who gets their Adderall prescribed and gets a little too high of a dosage. It's, you know, for, you know, white ladies chugging Xanax. It's, yeah, it's, you know, for opiates, it's, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's all of that. Um, the part that's, like, unbelievable to me is that they would even investigated but i guess it shows like it's just like this one guy it is like a yeah the hopelessness of their investigation is what speaks for for, you know you know like it's it's hopeless in the sense i you know largely what the money is wasted on is the targeting of like individuals and like social circles as opposed to yeah again the actual problem you know that Mm -hmm. gets one guy whose brain is pretty rotted yeah, I guess like that those that because I was wondering if it was like a little bit propaganda. I guess it, like I guess like it shows them being evil enough that it it isn't. But just the idea that the police would earnestly try to actually stop any any of it. Um. Well, but I guess yeah. just showing how ineffective limited their yeah, even if they were genuine. Yeah, how ineffective it is. Like the reason why they can't use their massive surveillance apparatus on them is because. New Path has a deal with the government somehow. Right. And yeah, I guess that would relate to reality, like, to our day and age, too. Like, like all these pharmaceutical companies, like, you know, like, they donate to all the congressmen. Right, right. Yeah, like, that's definitely true. Oh, I guess, like, I, I speaking on that, like, the way, you know, you have, like, these layers of paranoia or, like, seeing the world slightly correct or slightly incorrect or, like, fooling yourself, like... There was that, like, what do you think uh, on the end there with the, I don't know, the, the cop guy that, then it's, I guess it's real that Donna's name is Audrey, I think, mm-hmm. when she's having, when well, they're eating, and, like, the cop is basically, like, the cop she's talking to, who's, like, more at peace with it, because, like, Donna feels, like, super horrible about the way she be- she deceived and, like, destroyed this guy's life, like, without his knowledge, even. Um, the cop is, like, made more peace with it. It's like, I just have to believe that we're doing the right thing. Well, the other cop isn't the one in the situation. You know what I mean? He doesn't, he has like no personal, Yeah. he has no personal stake in yeah. it really. I guess that's just to highlight the difference between like police work and like, um, you know, like in our personal relationships, <laughs> mm-hmm. 40% yeah. of cops beat their wives. Right. And like the, uh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, it's, we're looking at cops, like, yeah, like the interpersonal is also muddy. Like it's not like, you know, for everyone, cop like hugging a child on the street it's you know you get the home life of maybe even that cop right uh and you know for every serpico you just have you know they have all the corruption that serpico was around right um but even but this guy though like but this guy like yeah is completely unconnected to any of that good or bad so he just has to believe it's good maybe thinks about it in the abstract and he says some stuff about like, I believe God's M.O. is to transmute uh, evil into good. That's, like, a very, like, metaphysical outlook. Like, you have to, like, go all the way up to the ultimate, to the highest authority in order to justify what you're doing. <laughs> well, again, I think that just shows maybe the unsoundness of it all. It's, it's, you know, it's all, like, unstable. It's just not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's. It's all pointless. The, the war on drugs is is, is pointless. Oh, yeah. It's, it's pure ideology. Right. Pure exactly. ideology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's actually great, yeah. 
think that kind of puts a bow on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think if we're going to want to talk about next week, we better kind of call it now, because mm-hmm. I, yeah. No, I think, yeah, I think this was a good conversation. We went all the way. We talked about, like, the mechanics of the movie and talked about, like, the individual experience of someone addicted to drugs all the way up to the society that, that makes them be addicted to drugs. Right. Pretty yeah. good. Pretty good. Oh yeah, we solved it. We've <laughs> we we unraveled society. True. Society solved. No more problems. Utopia. <laughs> it's uh, just ideology. Uh, stop doing it, and you're welcome. Right. Right. <laughs> more pleasant evenings that way. That was a scanner right. darkly. Um, join us next week. I believe we're uh going back into literature. We're doing a play this time, right? Yep, Uncle Vanya, I think. Uncle Vanya. So, finally get to know what's behind all those lines and drive my car. That's right. Yeah, so uh, join us next week for Uncle Vanya. This has been Pleasant Evenings Book Club. Uh, Signing out. Mm